The passage of scripture for this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 17, and then I'll read through until verse 5 of chapter 3. 217 through chapter 3, verse 5. This is God's word. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about you, about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. My wife and I started dating in the first semester of our freshman year in college. And we continued to date all four years. When we graduated, it only took two weeks to get us to the marriage altar to give our vows and get married. We had waited long and fought hard for that opportunity to commit to one another for life. And during those four years of dating, we faced a lot of trials and challenges, difficulties. But I think some of the hardest ones were those summer breaks. And if you ever dated in college, you know what I'm talking about. When, you know, it, when you're in college, you're there, you're away from your parents, you're on your own, you're somewhat independent. And when you're dating someone, you get to go to class with them, you get to study with them, you get to go to meals with them, you get to hang out with your friends with them. It's kind of a 24-7 thing for eight months of the year. But that makes the other four months of the year painful. A real painful separation. And then, you know, some smiles of recognition there and maybe some of you thinking how silly young people and their ideas of love. And, but it's painful. It was hard being forcibly separated. Especially in that day, we didn't have all the means of communication we have today to be able to stay better in touch. No Skyping, nothing. And so... You know, we would really have genuine fears going into those summers apart. We would generally think, you know, what's going to happen during these four months? Will my affections grow cold? Will some other girl or guy intervene? What's going to happen? But in hindsight, I think that both of us can say, looking back on those summers, the absences, the, the, the forced separation actually had a positive effect on a relationship. There's a reason why the cliche phrase has been adopted worldwide, the idea that absence causes the heart to grow fonder. Sometimes it doesn't, but often it does. 
I want to underline that fact that forced separation from somebody you love is painful. And maybe you can think of many instances in your own life where you have been forcibly separated from someone you love. It's a real pain. And depending upon the nature of the separation, it could be a kind of pain that is far worse than having the flu or breaking a leg or having some dread disease. You would rather have those things and be with the person you love than to be forcibly separated from them. Just to underline how painful it is. And this is the kind of pain, I just wanted to get you thinking about it because that's the kind of pain that Paul is alluding to in verse 17 when he opens this section by saying, but since we were torn away from you, brothers. He had been torn away from these brothers and sisters in Christ that he had grown to love dearly. And it was deeply painful to him. It was painful to them to have Paul torn away from them. Let me give you just a reminder again of the background of this. You find it in Acts 17. Paul had come to Thessalonica a few few months earlier. And he had come preaching Christ risen and Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead, preaching the gospel. And it says in Acts 17 that some of the Jewish people in the synagogue, but many of the Gentiles came to believe in Jesus Christ and commit their life to him. And Paul was just getting started to build a foundation for the church there, to build a ministry, to, to build up those disciples so that they could, to, could prosper in the faith. He was just getting started when the unbelieving Jewish leadership had gotten together a mob and they attacked the church and they dragged Jason, one of the Christians, before the magistrates in the city of Thessalonica and accused Paul and Silas and their associates of trying to start a seditious movement, a rebellious movement against Caesar. When that happened, Paul and Silas were very quietly, they snuck out of town under the cover of darkness. And they were, as Paul and Paul's words, they were torn, forcibly separated from these brothers and sisters in Christ. It appears that what had happened in the meantime, from what Paul says in this letter and 2 Thessalonians, what we know from the book of Acts, it appears that the church in Thessalonica continued to be attacked by unbelievers, both Jewish and Gentile unbelievers in their city. They continued to suffer. They continued to be persecuted while Paul was gone. Meanwhile, Paul had moved on to Berea. Then he went on to Athens. And from Athens, when he couldn't bear it anymore, he sent back Timothy to Thessalonica. And then he went on to Corinth. And that's where he's writing the letter from. But Paul says here, in what we read today, he said that time and time again, again and again, he said, I tried to get back to you. I desperately longed to get back to see how you were doing, to encourage you and strengthen you in the faith. I desperately longed to get there, but I was hindered. I was stopped by Satan. And he doesn't describe how Satan did that. But somehow, Paul was not able to get back. And again, imagine yourself, not back in in the era of my youth, but back in the time of Paul, how difficult communication was back then if you're forcibly separated. Didn't have texting. Didn't have cell phones. Didn't have the internet. Didn't have email. Didn't even have the U.S. Postal Service. So... To be forcibly separated like there was to have dead silence. Paul didn't know how the Thessalonians were doing and the Thessalonians didn't know how Paul was doing. 
So it's one thing to be forcibly separated. It's another thing to have no idea. And Paul knew that they had, he had left because of the persecution. He knew they were suffering. And we talked about how that deeply uh, concerned Paul. He describes his concern over in verse five of chapter three, the last verse we read. Where he said, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He longed for reassurance that what he thought he saw, the Holy Spirit working in them and them receiving the gospel and beginning to grow in the word, that it proved to be real, especially proved to be real in the face of suffering and persecution. But Paul had just received, as we know, in, in writing 1 Thessalonians, he had just received, Timothy had just returned from Thessalonica to report to Paul, and he came back with a very encouraging report. They're doing well, Paul. They're continuing to read the word. They're continuing to pray. They're continuing to worship. They're growing. They're flourishing, even in spite of the opposition that they're facing and the persecution they're going through. And so that's what Paul's responding to here in this section. And as we study this section, what we're going to see is the effect that suffering has upon those whose faith is real. The effect that suffering has when people endure that suffering by faith in Jesus Christ. The first effect we can see is what it does upon their relationship with other believers. Suffering is intended to bring believers together, to make our relationships more intimate. And you see that in this passage, in the way that Paul talks to the Thessalonians, in the relationship he has with them. He says in verse 17, we were torn away from you. And sometimes when you dig into the original language, and in this case it's Greek, when you dig into the original language, you can find little treasures there, things you can't see in the English. And what's interesting about this word is it's the only place in the whole New Testament that this word appears in the Greek. But if you go back to the Greek roots of it, the, 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 the roots of it go back to the idea of being orphaned. And so what Paul is saying here alludes back to what he had said earlier in chapter 2 about his affection for these Thessalonian Christians. How much he loved them. As, and he described that love for these Christians in terms of parental care. Listen, first of all, in verse 7 of chapter 2. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He loved them like a mother loves her own nursing infant. And then down in chapter, or in, in chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12, he says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. He loved this church like a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. The same kind of passionate, intense love and concern for them. And so when he says, we were torn away from you, we're to feel that pain. And again, the word torn away is related to, to these believers being orphaned. We were your spiritual parents and our children were torn away from us in their infancy. Can you imagine how painful that was for Paul? I, when I first read that, the picture, the image that popped into my mind, and many of you have seen these too from World War II during the Holocaust, when Nazi soldiers would, would tear children out of the arms of their screaming mothers and fathers to take them away. That's the kind of pain, that's the image that Paul is trying to paint for us here. 
We were torn away. We are your spiritual parents who were torn away from you while you were in your vulnerable infancy in the faith. And that's why, you know, as you look at the language of this passage, you know, he says, you are apart from me in person, but not in heart. And that's the exact opposite of what I think the Thessalonians would have feared, not having heard from Paul and Paul not returning. They would have thought, oh, out of sight, out of mind. And Paul says, no, not out of sight, out of mind. Not by face. And you can't see my face, but you're in my heart, is what he's saying. And what really strikes me about this whole passage is how passionately Paul talks about his affection for these Christians. Look at verse 17. He says that, that he and Silas had great desire to see you face to face, a deep longing desire to see them face to face. Verses 19 and 20, he describes what they mean to him with this deep affection. He says, for what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And I know when I first read that, it's kind of like, well, Paul, that's kind of over the top. I mean, you didn't know these guys that long. I mean, how can you feel that strongly about it? But remember, Paul says back in verse 5 that he didn't flatter them. And he's not flattering now. He's not just saying something to make them feel better about themselves. He genuinely means this. And if you understood what drove Paul in ministry, you would understand why his affection could be so strong so quickly for these people. To understand Paul's passion in ministry, you have to understand what is he living for. I mean, I've had people ask me, why did you get into ministry? And I never give answers as clear, as, as profound as what Paul says when, you, when Paul answers that question in Scripture. Paul says why he got into ministry, what he was called to, what he devoted his life to, many places in the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul says there, and Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul is including himself with all true good spiritual leaders there and saying, this is what we live for is to see believers mature in the faith, to see them grow in Christ-likeness. That's what he lived for. That's, what he, he got, found, that's where he found his joy. That's where he found his satisfaction in life, is that through his preaching of the gospel, his teaching of the word of God, that believers would mature in their faith, their faith would grow stronger, and their life would reflect their love for Christ more and more, that they would draw near to Christ. That was his passion. Listen to him as he describes it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. There he says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I had a beloved member of my former congregation in, in, in Philadelphia do that up with calligraphy, do that, that, those two verses and put them in a beautiful frame so that I could put it on my desk at work, that I would look at that every week because I want my heart to be the same as Paul's heart. That that's what he lived for, that that was the passion, that's what drove him. That's not, what, not only what got him out of bed every morning, but it's what drove him to be so tired he collapsed in bed at night, was to see believers become mature in Christ, that he might present them mature in Christ. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the beginning of that chapter, he, he uses a metaphor that portrays this idea much more graphically, beautifully. He says, he's talking to the church in Corinth and he says, he says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's how he understood his role as a spiritual leader is to beautify the church through the power of the word and the power of the gospel. That the church would become like Christ as she prepares to be united to Christ fully when he comes again. That's what drove him. That's what he was passionate about. That's why he loved the church so much. That's why he could say genuinely from the heart to these relatively new believers, he could say, you are my glory, you are my victory crown, you are my joy. You see, that's what suffering does. As the church suffers, and particularly in this case, Paul is dealing with a forced, hostile separation from those that he loved. God used that suffering to confirm the work that Paul and Silas and the others had been doing in that church to set the foundation. And he rejoiced in that. And he was drawn to these people because of that. He loved them even more deeply. Absence had caused his heart to grow fonder as it had for the church in Thessalonica. You see, that's what suffering is supposed to do in the life of the church. It's supposed to bring us together. When we endure our suffering by faith in Jesus Christ, and all those qualifications need to be there, that you are enduring your suffering, not just by gritting your teeth and getting through it, but you're enduring your suffering by faith in Jesus Christ. What it does is it bonds you together with other believers because that's what we're supposed to do when we suffer. We're supposed to come together. Scripture tells us to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep, to come alongside one another in the midst of our trials and sufferings. No Christian should ever suffer alone. If a Christian is suffering alone, it's because of one or two, one, one of two, or maybe both things. Either, first of all, that suffering believer is not going to other believers for help and comfort. And that's too often the case. You're suffering in silence alone, like somehow that would be showing weakness to admit you're suffering. No, we are to go to one another, to weep together, to bear one another's burdens. Or maybe the brothers and sisters are not coming to the suffering one like they should. But when we suffer together, there is a deep bond that takes place. And that's what's intended by the Holy Spirit. Before I leave this point of how suffering is meant to bring us together, let me ask the question, because I know I had to really wrestle with this myself. Do I love the church like Paul loved the church? Do I have that passion for the church like Paul had for the church? And don't just answer that quickly. I mean, really think about how have you talked about the church in the past week, the past month, the past year? It's easy in our comfort and our lack of persecution to spend our spare time focusing on the flaws and the continuing sins and weaknesses and inadequacies of the church. And the problem is sometimes we get really consumed with that and we aren't loving the church. I was really struck by that. Paul was passionate for the church in Thessalonica. He loved the church. Do we love the church? 
The second effect of suffering and faith in Christ is not just in our relationship with each other within the church, but much more importantly, our relationship with the Lord. Suffering is intended to draw us to Christ. That's his intention behind suffering in the life of a believer. Every believer, when you enter into trials or difficulties, and again, I don't just mean physical suffering. I mean any kind of trials and difficulties in your life. Every believer has to answer the question, where is God in all of this? Where is God in my suffering? I know the Thessalonians had to be wondering that. Again, they hadn't heard from Paul. Paul hadn't returned. He was snatched away from them. He did, they had no idea what his attitude was, what his thoughts were, what his efforts were. Silence from Paul. And in that silence, I'm sure that some of them at least wrestled with the question, has Paul abandoned us? Does Paul not care about us? Does Paul forgotten about us? Wait a minute, maybe God doesn't care about us. Maybe God has forgotten about us. If the gospel is true, why are we suffering like this? I'm sure they ask them, especially as young believers, ask those kinds of questions. And even Paul was frustrated. You see it in verse 18. You, just as you can see the passion of Paul in the, at the end of chapter uh, 2, you can see in verse 18 the frustration that Paul had in the suffering of separation that he was going through. In verse 18, he says, we wanted to come to you. He says, I tried again and again to come back to you. But Satan hindered us. He was frustrated with Satan's effort to hinder his progress of getting back to the Thessalonians. And so that begs the question, wait a minute, who's in control here? Where's God in my suffering? If Satan can hinder Paul from getting back to the Thessalonians, that means Satan is stronger than God. Does that mean Satan can thwart God's purposes or his plan? Those are the kind of questions that suffering brings up in our lives. We tend to avoid those questions, especially in times of peace and prosperity and ease and comfort. We don't have to think about these difficult questions, but when suffering hits, you got to answer them. And your answers are going to determine whether you're going to endure this by faith or not. There's only four possibilities. I'm going to get philosophical with you for a minute, and at my very elementary level of philosophy, I want to get philosophical with you. When you suffer... And you ask the question, where is God in relation to my suffering? There's only four answers that I, I can think of. They're not very nuanced, but there's four basic answers that you can come up with to that question. First of all, God doesn't exist. You could answer the question that way. There is no God. The material world is all that there is. Everything that's here happened by blind chance. Everything that happens in my life happens by blind chance. And so I'm suffering because I'm unlucky. The laws of Probability didn't work out in my favor this time, so that's why I'm suffering. Possibility number two, God does exist. Therefore, being God, he knows about my suffering, but he either doesn't care or even worse, he somehow delights in watching me suffer. Possibility number three, God does exist, and being God, he knows about my suffering, and he does care for me. He loves me dearly. But he's not all-powerful. He's not completely in control. And so Satan can hinder his purposes. Our sins can get in his way, can thwart his plans. And so therefore, God does love me, but he's not all-powerful. But he is, because he loves me, he's there to help me pick up the pieces afterwards. 
And unfortunately, a lot of teaching in the name of Christ would affirm number three as the answer to the question of where is God in my suffering? But I think the biblical answer, and I'm sure the biblical answer to the question is actually number four. God does exist. He does love and care for his people far more deeply than we can ever know or comprehend. He is all-powerful. He is completely sovereign over all things. And he allows suffering in our lives for his glory and for our good. That's the biblical answer to the question. And I know it's a difficult answer to get to, especially philosophically. But when you're experiencing trials and suffering, that's the only one that brings real comfort and peace. God exists. He loves me more than I can possibly understand. He is totally sovereign over my situation, totally in control, but he is allowing me to walk this dark and difficult path for his glory and for my good. As you read through the Bible, that's what you find is the perspective of God's word. Let me clarify, God does not delight in watching his children suffer, but he allows it. He allows it because he knows that because of our sinfulness, suffering is a much more powerful teaching and training tool in our lives than prosperity is. I don't know of a single believer who has ever argued with me when I've made this statement. For the typical believer, you have grown in your faith, you have become more mature in your spirituality, you have drawn nearer to Christ and nearer to God the Father through times of suffering far better than you have through times of peace and prosperity and comfort in this world. I've never had a believer seriously argue with me on that. And there's where you see the purpose of suffering. Why God allows it. Because temporary pleasure and comfort in this life, which is so fleeting, which is so quick to go away, to turn to dust and blow away, temporary pleasure and comfort in this life are not even remotely as valuable as the eternal heart and character that the Holy Spirit will produce in the heart of a believer who endures suffering by faith. In chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul says that he's concerned that their faith in the Lord not be moved by these afflictions. And he goes on to say, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. That's interesting to me, that Paul saw it as a key part of his ministry to a new church that has just understood and received the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it was important to them that in establishing that church and building a strong foundation for that church, that he communicated to them that they must expect to suffer, that they were destined to suffer. Destined by who? Not by Satan, but by the Lord that they were called to it in the language of 1 Peter chapter 4. That that's part of the calling of a believer is to suffer for Christ and with Christ. In the book of Acts, it talks about Paul's ministry. And at one point, I'm fascinated as a confirmation of this, 
In Acts chapter 14, it's talking about him going from church to church, strengthening and establishing Christians in churches. And listen to how it describes his ministry to those churches. This is Acts 14, beginning of verse 21. And when they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, speaking of Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that we must, through many tribulations, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. A key element of strengthening and encouraging the churches was ensuring that they understand that we must, through many trials and tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. Satan was certainly active in this suffering. Paul says, Satan hindered me time and time again from returning to his beloved Thessalonian church. But Satan wasn't defeating God's purpose by doing so. He was actually unintentionally fulfilling it. It's interesting to me that elsewhere in the book of Acts, back in chapter 16, it says twice that Paul wanted to go to a certain place, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from going. And he wanted to go to another place, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from going. And then he eventually gets a call from the man of Macedonia to come there. So God was guiding him where to go by, by blocking access to this place and that place so that he would go where God was calling him. It's interesting, though, that, that Luke, writing that, says the Holy Spirit prevented him. And here, Paul wanted to go back to Thessalonica, and Paul says, Satan hindered me. And I wondered about this, that this week. Well, what's the difference? Why is it the Holy Spirit, in one case, stopping Paul from returning, uh, going someplace, and in this case, it's Satan? And I think my guess is that it's because it was human opposition that was blocking him from returning. Persecution. It was the efforts of the evil one and those unwittingly serving the purposes of the evil one that were preventing him from returning. But in both cases, God was behind it all. Satan was active, but God didn't want Paul to go back yet. Paul, God, the Holy Spirit was still doing something in Paul's absence that he didn't want Paul there yet. So he allowed Satan and those who opposed the church to hinder him from returning. That's what God did. That's how Paul understood it. It reminds me of when Joseph, back in the book of Genesis, Joseph the patriarch, when he was, his brothers plotted against him to kill him. And when they didn't kill him, they actually they threw him in the pit. Slave traders came and took him from the pit and took him down to Egypt where he ended up in prison. His brothers in their evil and their sin had caused him to suffer greatly. But years later, after God had delivered him from prison and had delivered him to a place of high influence in the Egyptian government, he meets up with his brothers again. And when his brothers come before him, they are horrified to realize, here's the brother they tried to kill. And now they're under his authority and they, he, they, he can do with them as he wills. And remember what, what Joseph said to them, you meant evil against me, but God intended it for good so that many people would be kept alive to this day. You see, Joseph understood all the way back in Genesis what Paul is talking about here. Yes, evil men mean evil things for evil purposes, but God overrules and orchestrates all events, both good and bad, to bring about his good purposes. And all of God's plan is about his glory and our good, the church. And that's the message of the book of Job. Satan asked permission of God at the beginning of that book to cause Job, righteous Job, to suffer in horrific ways. Terrible loss and grief and pain. 
But the book is clear that it is God who is ultimately in control of that, even though Satan is the one who eagerly inflicted it upon Job. And throughout the course of the entire book of Job, Job and his friends are asking that question we talked about. Why? Why would righteous Job have to suffer like this? What's, what's going on here? And they come up with all kinds of wrong answers. But at the end, you find out not the particular reasons why, but the big reason why, which is that the same reason that Paul was talking about, that God wanted Job's faith to grow. God wanted Job's faith to become mature, to see things as God sees them, not from this puny human perspective. Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh, his own thorn in the flesh. It was some kind of a physical affliction. We don't know what it was. But he calls it, interestingly, in 2 Corinthians 12, he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me. And so he's acknowledging that Satan inflicted, somehow was involved in the infliction of this physical pain upon him, maybe something he suffered through persecution and beatings or whatever. But it's interesting, right after saying that, right after he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me, the very next thing he says to keep me from becoming conceited. Was that Satan's intent in harassing him? Absolutely not. It was God's intent in allowing Satan to harass him. So, was so that he, this man of great intellect, this great spiritual maturity, this great power and authority in the church, that he would stay humble. That he would become mature in Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Not in the sufferings themselves. Sufferings are always evil. Sufferings are always bad. But we rejoice in what God is doing through allowing these sufferings. He goes on to say, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, God intends trials, tribulations, sufferings to test our faith. If our faith is not genuine, if it's fake, then suffering will drive us away from the church and drive us away from Christ himself. But if our faith is genuine, the response of real faith is to run to Christ, to run to the church for comfort and strength and hope. In 1 Peter chapter 4, again, it says, verses 12 through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. What a noble calling. Christ was called to suffer, and we are called to follow his example, as he says back in chapter 2. He says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You want to experience the presence of the spirit of glory, the spirit of God in your life? Then accept your suffering as a calling from God, as an opportunity, embrace it. As hard as that is, embrace it as an opportunity to mature in Christ, to grow stronger in faith and become more like Christ, and more importantly, to draw near to him. Suffering is to be expected by believers because we know that God uses that to mold us, to shape us, to refine us, and to grow us. I read an article on the Gospel Coalition site just a couple days ago. 
Not because it's this great article, just very timely. I was very much thinking about all these things. And that day comes up an article on the Gospel Coalition site that says, trials are blessed chauffeurs. In other words, trials that are intended by God as a vehicle to bring us to him. And this is, this is just a couple of paragraphs from that article. He says, this is how we know that it is faith at work. Amid the trial and temptation, it does not look within, but without. Faith never looks within, but always looks away. Faith has eyes to look for God. It has hands to cling to God. It has feet to run to God. Faith latches on to her object amid the time of trouble. This difficulty we endure drives us to cling to God. Whatever is ailing us, surprisingly, is actually serving us. This is not often how we think. We think in terms of things going well when it is good. If, if things are going well, then it is good. If things are hard, well, then it's not, things are not going well. But this is a crucial lesson for us to learn as believers. Difficulty for the Christian should not be taken to mean that God is upset with you, but rather it could, be very, it could very well be that God will show himself to be close to you in the midst of the trial. In this way, the trial is a servant. I wonder how your life might change if you adopted this subtle shift in your thinking. Instead of thinking that the medical, physical, spiritual, or personal conflicts that you're enduring right now are a sign of God's displeasure, what if they were meant to show you the sufficiency, the beauty, and the kindness of God? You see, it's all about how you interpret your afflictions. Paul and the writers of Scripture have made it clear to us we will, through many trials and tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. We are to expect them. It's not a question of whether you're going to suffer or not, but how are you going to respond when you do? That's the important question. That's the one that will reveal your faith and the level of your faith. The simple lesson of this love note that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica that was written in the context of real suffering on the part of the both of them, which was resulting of a forceful tearing away separation, the bottom line lesson is that God is in control and he has a greater purpose in our suffering, whatever form it takes, that we would draw closer to each other and ultimately and more importantly, closer to him. He is our good shepherd. His rod and his staff, they comfort us even when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. That's faith. Let's pray. Father, Forgive us for the way that we engage our sufferings, the way in which we respond to the trials, the difficulties, the conflicts, the stresses that make our life difficult. Forgive us for the ways in which we have reacted like the world. Forgive us for the ways in which we have acted like you don't exist or the ways in which we've acted which would reflect that you don't care or the ways in which we've reacted that would reflect that we think that you're unable, you don't have the power to deliver us or help us in our time of need. Father, may our faith grow. May we more and more see that you are the loving, sovereign, redeemer God to whom we belong, the one who is working all things together for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.